This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. Appreciate the band um, worship team stepping up today. In Mitch's absence, he uh, had to leave pretty unexpectedly at the last minute to go up to Iowa. His sister, some of you maybe remember his sister. What's her name, Megan? Casey. Casey. That's right, Casey, who was born with um, a, um, an illness, a disease, and wasn't expected to live past five years old. And so um, she's about 21 now, and it may be the end here. And so just be praying for their family and uh, Mitch, as he's uh, away from us, he's uh, scheduled to be back tonight, but um, pending what happens there. So let's just pray right now for, uh, for them and also just for this new series we're starting today. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, and it's, it's he that we celebrate, uh, not ourselves. God, we look to the cross, we look to you to find our worth, our identity, our value, because it's only and your calling on our lives that we find our purpose and we um, come to know uh, the truth. And God, I pray that you will lead us as we study in the book of Mark. God, I pray that this will be not just a, an intellectual encounter, but God, this will be a time to really move and change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. really like those uh, movies uh, that come out from time and again where you have a body swap that happens. You may remember like the movie Big where Tom Hanks was a little, maybe a 12-year-old kid, and uh, he instantly became a 30-year-old man. And the humor and the comedy that uh, came about as a result of him trying to pretend like an adult in an adult situation, in an adult job, but with a very childish mindset, and, uh, and, and just how the movie transpired. And so just imagine, just in, in your own family, you can see just the radical change of one sibling overnight became the other sibling, and all of a sudden you would immediately notice there's something not right here, right? This, this is not the way this kid normally acts. Well, Max Licato, author and pastor, who wrote a book many years ago called Just Like Jesus, and he gave us this question. He asked this question right on the first page of the book. He said, what if for one day Jesus were to become you? What if for one day Jesus were to become you? How would that affect your life? Honestly, think through that. Think through your day, like what happens tomorrow when you hit, you know, hit the ground running and you start to go to work and maybe you hit the gym. Think about, um, think about the encounters you normally have with people and the differences maybe they would notice in the way that you conducted or handled yourself. Think about your spouse right off the day, at the beginning of the day. You know, would you be more loving, more giving, more sacrificial? Think about at the gym with the woman that you normally have chit-chat with, all of a sudden wonder why you're not as flirtatious as you normally are? Would your employer suddenly realize that maybe, you know, maybe your integrity, what happened here, all of a sudden you have integrity now, you're punctual, you're on time, versus maybe your normal behavior. And on through your life, think about how Jesus would be, live your life differently from you. Would your enemies notice a different difference? Would your neighbors instantly see that this was not the same you that normally resides next to them? That's a challenging question for us all. 
And if we just take a, just in, just in your mind, get a, just take a photo, take a still shot of that, kind of what, what, what you kind of see your life being different there for a second, and just allow that image just to kind of saturate on you. And think about, that's the way that Jesus wants you and I to live our lives. That's what Jesus wants from us. He wants to, to live through us and allow Jesus just to permeate everything about us. And that's why I believe God is leading us to this gospel of Mark. This is the first time since I've been your pastor, been preaching for six years now that we've uh, jumped into a, a gospel and we're going to cover a gospel from beginning to end and we're going to look at the gospel of Mark. And we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and we've done some things in Matthew, but from beginning to end, we're going to look at the book of Mark and the life of Jesus because I want us to not just encounter Jesus here, but I want us to encounter him here. I want us to fall in more in love with Jesus. I want us to be more single-minded in our devotion to following God's will in our lives. I want us to actually follow Jesus in every aspect of our life. You know, I talk to people all the time who tell me they're saved, who tell me they're a Christian. But when you look at their life, like kind of what was referred to here a minute ago by Chip, you don't really see that much difference in the way they conduct themselves and other people around. But as we've studied Scripture over the past months, particularly in the book of Colossians, we see that Jesus living in us makes a radical change in our lives. There's really true change that happens. Something really truly happens in us. We're not the same person that we used to be after we give our lives to Christ, when we accept his free gift of salvation. And so some people think, I can be a Christian without being a disciple. But there's no difference between a disciple and a Christian. It's the same thing, that we're followers of Christ. In fact, the, in the New Testament, the, the, the early Christians, they were called Christians because their behavior, their activity, their speech, they were like Jesus. The word Christian literally means a follower of Christ, belonging to the party of Christ. But we've allowed being saved to turn into something that we just do to get our eternal security, but then we just allow our lives to live separate from the fact that, you know, Jesus is actually our, our leader, and he's the one that we follow and look to him. But we don't just do that by just sheer grit and determination. And that's why it's important that we understand that something radical has happened in our lives. In fact, up on the screen, and you can jot down these verses and look them up later, but we've been united with Christ. That Christ is in us, Colossians told us. That's the hope of our glory. That we're a new creation. When we are saved, when we become a Christian, we're a new creation in Christ. And we saw this last, last week in John 7, 37, 39, that Jesus said that the, the, the rivers of living water will flow out of us. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit who would come and reside in believers. And so you look at that list and you see that this is definitely not just, okay, let's see Jesus in the Gospels and all of a sudden now let's just put a picture of him up on our wall and let's make notes of all the things that he did and then let's try our hardest to become like Jesus. There's something that's changed within us, that's something that's different about us, and that should give us a desire, a motivation, a passion to become more and more like Christ. And I love, I, I've referred to this passage many times as your pastor, because this is a very definitive passage to me that reveals so much about the tension that's in the Christian life in this area of what God does and then our response to what God has done. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 said, says, God has given us 
everything we need to live a godly life. He's given us everything we need. The New Living Translation says it this way. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him. And so he's given us everything we got. And then when he says two verses later, you can't see the verse reference, but it's verse 5. It says, in view of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. In response to this, make every effort. So you see that it, it, it flows out of us. The Holy Spirit empowers us. He gives us this desire to know Jesus, this desire to live right and follow his commands and what the scripture tells us and to obey his promises and, and the things that he tells us in his word. He gives us the power to do that. But then on the other side is we're active in this process. We're not passive. And so it requires setting your alarm earlier in the morning so you can meet with Christ. That's a, a, a real life action that I got to make every effort. It may be cost not being around certain people because you know how poison they are to your Christian walk. It says, I'm not doing that. I, I like being around them, but it's not good for me. I'm dropping to their level. They're definitely not, I'm not pulling them up. And so I'm giving up that relationship. It means making every effort sometimes to click off the TV or turn off the computer or the iPad and spend time talking to God or leading your family in truth. And so we make every effort. God has given us that desire. He's given us that motivation. He's put a spirit within us. He's made us a new person, moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and now make every effort to live for him. And so as we look in the Gospels, as we pursue Christ in the Gospel of Mark, there is responsibility to take action, to obey. And just like Jesus' 12 disciples, what the cool thing is, that God doesn't expect us to be just like Jesus overnight. In fact, this is a process that will only end in glory one day. But there should be progression. If you look at the literal 12 disciples, they messed up a lot, didn't they? They didn't always have it right. They, they, they really, really, being with Jesus and hearing Jesus teaching, his message, observing his life, and they still got it wrong and were confused so much at the time because we are humans and we fall short and we need Jesus daily. And so this transformation, it's a process, but we need to always keep in mind that God loves us exactly where we're at, if we're his child. He loves us exactly where we are, but he loves us so much he will not leave us there. He's going to continue to transform us. So over the next few months, we're going to really dig into this gospel of Mark. We're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to observe Jesus. We're going to have takeaways from his life that we can apply through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Mark chapter 1 we're going to go through verse 8 today. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For some of you who may not be super familiar with your Bible, maybe you're relatively new to the faith, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those four Gospels are accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And even in post-Christian America, the majority of the people, if you ask them who is John the Baptist, they would probably have heard, at least have heard of John the Baptist. He was the first prophet called by God since Malachi, some 400 years earlier. So if you look at your Bible where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, there's a period of silence there where God did not speak through his prophets, did not speak to his people. And John now is coming on the scenes and he is a prophet and he's, he's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And in his first verses of Mark chapter 1, we see a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. And in verse 3 of Isaiah 40, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 5, for the glory of the Lord shall revealed, be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so some 700 years before John the Baptist comes on the scene, this passage illustrates God's master plan. God is putting into action his plan, and he sends John, and John is a forerunner to Jesus. And Mark also quotes in this passage, he also quotes from Malachi chapter 3, and let me read those verses as well. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so in those days when royalty was coming, people prepared the way. An envoy went ahead and prepared the way for the royalty. And that's what John the Baptist was he was preparing the road, preparing the way. I read this that in England there's a joke that says that wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. And that's kind of the idea here that John the Baptist was preparing the way. He was announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the ancient world, this would have made perfect sense because they had royalty. And so you had this fiery prophet preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And John was clear about his purpose. His purpose was not to exalt himself, make himself central. His purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. And so let me give you a little background into, uh, again, to the Gospels, to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospels are called the Gospels because they're good news. And the Gospel of Mark was written by a close companion and disciple of Peter known as John Mark. And God, Mark's Gospel, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus but he was a close companion of Peter, and this is Peter's version of what happened in the life of Christ. So Peter is reciting and telling John Mark, and John Mark is writing this down, and here we are thousands of years later, we still have his account. And I, I think it's really important to note again, as I mentioned earlier, that when we think about this idea of following Jesus, and we think about this idea of being disciple, and I'm on this road following Christ, many of you feel like, well, you know, I know I'm truly a believer, but I'm way, way back here. Jesus is like somewhere way up there, and you got some you know, like people that may be closer, but I, I'm super far in the back. You know, my following of Jesus is terrible. It's awful. Well, I want to give you comfort that God isn't finished with you. If you are truly 
in the faith, if you truly know him, he's not going to give up on you. And I think about Mark, who is also called John Mark. You may remember this when we studied in Colossians, that he was a quitter. He quit. He quit on a missionary journey. And Paul lost so much faith in John Mark that he refused to take him with him again. But through God's grace and God's restoration, John Mark came back, he returned, he got on board, and Paul later on in his life said, take John Mark, he's, he's good to go. He, he's, he's really serious about this now. And then the guy who's giving John Mark this account, Peter, we most of us know about Peter, what he did, Peter was the disciple who I can relate to the most because he was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He had lots of passion, lots of fire, but sometimes his mouth got ahead of his brain, right? And he said things. He oftentimes was the one that said the thing that everybody else thought that they were afraid to say. But Peter, he, he, he was strong and passionate when he was around the insiders, when he was around his disciples. But we know what happened was when it came time when Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? He denied Christ. He cursed. He turned his back on Jesus and was scared and cried like a baby later because of his actions. And so I love this. You have two losers when it comes to following Jesus working together to give us the gospel of Mark. Two guys who failed in big ways in their faith. And so I say that because I don't want you to lose hope. I don't want you to think, well, I've been a Christian for a while and I just, I don't really feel like I'm going anywhere. God is not finished with you. God is not finished with you. Trust Him. If you feel His calling, if you sense His calling right now to really, really get, make every effort, now's the time to take advantage of the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Because He wants to conform you and make you just like Jesus. One thing you may notice when we started reading here in Mark chapter 1 is the fact that Mark admits uh, the, the birth of Jesus. He doesn't give us what happened with Jesus being born. And, you, and you, you'll see through this gospel that Mark, man, he, he's just like hitting the high point. I mean, he's, he's going at it. There's a sense of urgency about what he's saying. And another thing that you'll notice is that he doesn't spend a whole chapter on the genealogies like some of the other gospels do, where they talk about this person begot this person, who begot this person. You know, that's that chapter you skip over when you're reading through the gospels. Uh, there's probably a reason why Mark didn't give that, because his audience was probably uh, Roman Christians, Gentile Christians, and truthfully, they would not have had a whole lot of interest in knowing the genealogies. That would have really been something that caught the attention of Jewish uh, readers uh, like the Gospel of Luke gives us, but in Matthew, but, uh, but Mark d admits that. He also admits um, the, the birth of Jesus, as I said, because he's just getting to it. He's going at it, and he's not interested in writing a biography of Jesus. He's here giving us the life of Christ uh, and the teachings of Christ, the parables of Christ, and he's showing us through Peter's eyes what Peter observed. So he wastes no time to getting down to business, and he gives us one single sentence of introduction and every word in this introduction is vital and it's important. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Every word there. First, this is the good news of Jesus. A genuine, historical person who actually walked on this earth just like other men. But he's also, Mark mentions, he's the Christ. Why is that important? Because Christ means Messiah, the promised one the Savior of humanity. So he was a man who walked the earth, but he was also the Christ. And then the third thing we see from this 
He says that he's the son of God. Not the son of God in some general way, like we're all sons and daughters of God, but in a very specific way, Jesus is the unique son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God the son. And so he wants to make that very clear to us right off the bat that this is who we're writing about. This is who we're talking about. Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah. And in fact, when, you, when we read that, description of the Son of God, I can't help but to think as Peter's giving Mark this, uh, this, this account that he himself thinks back to his own bold declaration of Jesus being the Son of God in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 16. And let's read that together. It says, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter got it. Peter got it. But Peter didn't get it fully until a little bit later on because this was prior to the crucifixion. So he's in his huddle, his holy huddle, his little church, I know who you are. You're the son of God. But then Jesus is arrested. And, hey, you were with him, weren't you? I didn't even know the guy. Leave me alone. I'm not a follower of Jesus. You're mixed up. Wrong person. Wrong identity. But what happens when Peter receives the Holy Spirit? We looked at this last week. This boldness, this supernatural boldness came over him. And all of a sudden, what's he do? He begins to preach, and thousands of people come to Jesus as a result. So Jesus says, follow me, follow me. I, I want to just show you this chart. We've used this before in here. Yeah, go ahead to the next. Uh, and, and this is kind of the discipleship process, and we show this chart a lot here at Grace, because in this followership of Jesus, I want to bring this, constantly bring this back to very practical, because it's easy to get lost up here in this, in this realm where we're just like, oh, yes, I believe that, yeah, that's a good idea, and we don't put it into practice in our lives. And so, where are you at in this discipleship process, in this followership process of Jesus? I hope that everyone here hearing my voice has moved from the kingdom of darkness, must be born again to the kingdom of light, and has began your journey. But God doesn't want to leave you anywhere where you're at. He wants to keep you moving forward in this process. And Jesus wants to take you and give you boldness and to make you more and more like Jesus so that you can use your ministry and your spiritual gifts in order to serve him. And so we're not going to let the study of Mark be a history lesson. I'm going to constantly challenge us to look and to think about where are you at in your following of Jesus? Where are you at? Because the goal of discipleship is to bring all of life under the lordship of Jesus and help someone else to do the same. The goal of disciple is to bring all of life, your business, your marriage, your, your parenting, your recreation, everything under the lordship of Jesus. And, and, and you're not going to just be satisfied with that, but you're also going to try to bring other people along with you. And so that's a very easy question to throw out for you to answer in your mind today. Who are you bringing along? I sure hope if you're married and you have kids, it's your, it's your spouse and your, your, your children, men. Ladies, I hope you're making an impact in your home. 
I hope you're bringing your children along in the way of God. And then it's just we don't say, oh, I, I can handle that. But we also, as God's Spirit works in us and as we grow in our faith, we want to look outside and say, who can I bring along? Who can I disciple? Who can I help take that next step? And so you don't get all the way over here to the right and then think, okay, now I'm going to start making disciples. And, you know, the, if you, you may probably be further along than what you think you are. If you sit in church every week, chances are you know way more than you give yourself credit for. So you don't say, oh, let me get to like this point and then I'll turn around and try to share this with other people. I encourage you, start in our children's ministry, teaching in a small group. Start in the youth ministry. There's lots of opportunities. Look for opportunities to share your faith with other people. Verse 4, let's look at John's preaching, what he was saying. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So for John in this baptism that he was doing, it was admission of their sin and they were repenting of their sin. Repent just means to turn from the way that they are currently thinking and the way they're currently acting and living and to turn to God. So it's turning from their sin, turning from this way of living. Maybe a way really practical to think about it is a very self-centered way of living. It's what I want out of life. And all of a sudden I repent. I understand that my selfishness is sinfulness before God. I turn from that. I turn to God and allow him to be the Lord of my life. So repentance, turning from my in charge of my own life to now God being in charge of my life. And so this baptism that John was doing, this wasn't a Christian baptism. It wasn't the baptism like we do where we symbolize the, <coughs> excuse me, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because obviously this had not been instituted yet because Jesus had not, been, uh, had not died on the cross and rose again yet. And so his baptism was a baptism that was traditionally used for the Gentiles who were turning to Judaism. But John was opening this up for everyone. It wasn't just for Gentiles who were proselytized and turning. He was opening this up for everyone, and Jewish people were flooding in, because what you see in this is this humility. They're placing themselves on the same level as these despised Gentiles. But you know who would not be baptized during this time period? The religious leaders. They weren't going to humble themselves. They were too good. They weren't going to, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I had to humble myself and receive this baptism of repentance. I'm not like a Gentile. And you see the self-righteousness, and we'll see it throughout the gospel, not as much in Mark as some of the other gospels, but this self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. They would not humble themselves. And so those who accepted John's baptism, they were prepared for Jesus. They were prepared for what God was sending to them. Verse 6 I love John's passion. He's a guy that he's, he's clothed in, in camel's hair and this leather belt around his waist, and he comes out of the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. And what you have here, you have this, this, this picture of the Old Testament prophet. I mean, the people of Israel would have understood from studying the prophets and studying the Old Testament that John was in the mold of the Old Testament prophet. And this passion that he had, this fiery faith he had, was drawing people to Jesus. And that's the same thing is true today. You don't have to necessarily dress like this, but just a passion about Jesus. There's something contagious about that. And we're doing contagious life, and it starts with not knowing all the right things to say, but it's a love for Jesus. It's, it's just a desire to know Jesus and him being the Lord of every area of your life. And John was contagious. And he met this classic image of the Old Testament prophet. 
And to understand John the Baptist, we have to go back to again to Malachi chapter 4, when it was prophesied by Malachi, he says, look, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. And so this verse tells us that God says that Elijah will come to warn the people. And Elijah, he's this huge figure in the Old Testament. If you know scripture at all, you understand that Elijah was one of two people in the Bible who did not actually die. They were ushered up into, into heaven into, with God's presence without dying. And so Malachi says that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah is going to come. Now, we get clarity on exactly what that means because Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says this. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, he, meaning John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. So Elijah wasn't literally coming back. It was John the Baptist was in the spirit of Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the nation for Jesus, the day of the Lord, God's visitation. Jesus was coming to earth, the most radical thing imaginable, that God became flesh and dwelt among the people that he created. And John is the forerunner. He's the Elijah. He's preparing the people for Jesus, preparing the people for the day of the Lord. And those who truly owned up to their sins would realize they needed Jesus. And those who were were content in their self-righteousness and their delusions and their hypocrisy of being good enough for God by their religion and by their rituals, they would reject Jesus. So John is a forerunner. He's preparing the way. And then the final thing we see from John and something that we all need to learn, he, was, he understood his position. He was a servant. Look at verse 7 and 8. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not willing to stoop down and untie. What is that about? Back during the Bible times, everyone wore sandals. Their feet got nasty and dirty and dusty. However, the noble class, the upper class, it was beneath their dignity to go down and, and take off their shoes and clean. So they had their slaves to be the ones that did that. They're the ones that got down and took the sandals off. And John says that he's not even worthy to untie the shoes of the one coming after him. So basically he's saying, don't get excited about me. Look, don't get excited about me. See through me. Get excited about the one that I'm pointing you to, the one who is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who will come and deliver the people from their sins. So John understood that it wasn't about him. It's not about him. John understood it was all about Jesus. I think one of the... Uh, most vivid illustrations of someone who didn't understand it wasn't about them was once I went to a wedding and maybe the couple wanted this. I can't imagine so. But the preacher who was doing the ceremony, he turned the whole ceremony into a story about him, about himself. I mean, the crowd was laughing. I mean, he had them eating out of his hands. But you forgot about the, the man and the wife standing there giving their wedding vows because he was so humorous and he was so funny and he was building himself up. And I sit there in a seat and I was somewhat embarrassed because I thought, here it is, it's their big day and all of a sudden he's making it about himself. And we would quickly recognize that because we know that's not the way it should work. But we do that in our lives with this, this Jesus and becoming like Christ is so easy that we can take our personalities or the things that God has given us 
to point to him, and we use those things for us. We use those things for us building our kingdom rather than God building his kingdom. And again, I'm going to force you to be practical here. If God is giving you the ability to make money, do you see that as first and foremost to advance his kingdom? If God has given you the gift of teaching, are you using that gift to instruct and help others? Or do you use it in your profession alone? And then, I, you know, I, I leave that there because I live my life, you know, and then my spiritual life is something different, as Chip referred to in his talk today, or, or Jeremy. The best that you have to offer should be given to God. And we can take everything that we do. Scripture tells us in Corinthians, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And we got to reprogram our minds to think that way. And, and, and this has really been hitting me lately in my quiet time. In fact, I, I told you about the little reminders that I set in my phone to remind me throughout the day. And it was either Thursday or Friday. Um, my reminder was, remember the small things that you do could bring glory to God. Whether, I mean, it's, it's, it's things like the guys who show up here at 6.30 and set up chairs. You can come and you can be like, oh, here I go, do this again. But they look really excited, by the way, doing it. I appreciate all the effort these guys put in. But, you know, you can do something like that. I'm serving for God's glory. Or you can do it out of the flesh and receive no reward for that. Or you say, God, this is for you. I'd, I'd much rather be in bed as you're driving. In. I'd much rather be home in bed in my warm house than coming out here on a cold day. But, God, it's for your glory. I'm giving you my strength, my efforts for your glory today, for your kingdom today. I want our church to worship. I want our church to fellowship. I want our church to learn the word and apply the word. And just apply that to anything you do and everything you do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so that changes the way that we go to work in the mornings. It changes the way that we interact. And we don't get it right. We're going to be Peter. We're going to be John Mark. And there's going to be times when we're like, oh, what was I doing? What was I thinking? You haven't arrived. You won't arrive. But God says, you need to take on the identity like John the Baptist. He understood what he was about. He understood what his purpose was. And he clearly told in, in, in verse 8, he said, I'm here to baptize you with water. I'm just, this is symbolic. But he's like, Jesus is coming, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. We looked at it last week. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Guess what? That's happened. That's happened in you. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. You have everything you need to grow because he lives in you. You're in him, he's in you. There's no excuses. There's no reason why you can't become more like Christ if you know him and have a relationship with him. John said it this way in John 3.30. John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. I want that to be on our minds consistently over this next week. He must increase, I must decrease. Because that's where it starts. I quote this verse all the time, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live. I, I don't live for my identity. When I'm walking the Spirit, I don't live for John Woodrum. This life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. And so it's a battle. 
But our identity is Jesus. Our identity is Christ. And we live for him. I want to show you one last chart and we're done here. Saw this chart and kind of revised it from, I think it was in the, in the Navigators. But this is very simple. And I just want you to just see this and respond to it by a very practical step. We hear the word. We hear the word in the sermons. We hear the word in K-Group. We hear the, uh, the word in our quiet time. And what do we do with it? We, we specifically and actively respond to it. We respond to it actively when we hear it. And then once we hear it, I think here's one thing that oftentimes is left out and what we're trying to do as a church in growing in, the, in, growing in this area is we want to, this to live out in community. We want to have times and opportunities to really, really, on a consistent and intentional level, to debrief and interpret us living out the truth, okay? So we hear the truth, he must increase, but I must decrease. I've heard the word. Now I want to actively and specifically respond to that. Holy Spirit, please show me how I can decrease and allow Jesus to increase in my life. I'm praying that prayer even right now as you're hearing this sermon, you should be praying that prayer. God, how can I decrease and he increase in my life? And then I think the step that so many people miss is this the community aspect, the church aspect of it, where you get together in community, intentional community, and you discuss your life, not just general principles, but your life and how you're interacting with your spouse, how you're interacting with your children, how is it going at your workplace, and how the gospel and the lordship of Christ is permeating these areas. And we have K-group for that, and we understand that sometimes K-group can get pretty large and you don't have that level of intimacy. That's why oftentimes we encourage that next step. We have fight clubs. We have women's ministry that meets. Uh, there's other intentional discipleship opportunities that happen because you need those eye-to-eye conversations with other people where they're saying, hey, is there any area of your life that you're holding back from the lordship of Jesus? That we need people in our life who we, who we look to, to that we know are going to help us to actively live out this truth. Is there anybody in your life who you're better at that you won't forgive? Oh, really? Okay. Let's pray about that. Let's pray that God will allow you to forsake that sin and follow him more passionately. Is there any area of your life that you're not giving to God? How are you doing in your, on your electronics? Are you, are you looking at anything you shouldn't look at? Are you looking at uh, things that are driving you away from Jesus instead of bringing you to Jesus? How about your friendships? How about your social interactions? And so we actively take the word we apply the word, and then we debrief, we discuss it, and then we do it again. I hear the word, I obey the word, I debrief, discuss, grow, and that's just a rhythm of our life. Just a rhythm of our life. And just through that, those simple things, we'll see ourselves becoming more like John. I'm decreasing, and Jesus, he's getting more and more attention. I'm still living my life, but I'm no longer living it for me. I'm living it for Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel accounts that we have of your life on this earth, the things that you did, the things you didn't do, the way you responded. And God, as we look at these truths, God, help us to realize that the power and the strength to, to, to live like you can only be powered through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. 
and the word that speaks and awakens us and illuminates our lives. And God, I pray that you will allow us to take one step forward this, to today for those who need to um, be active in discipleship, your family, with those outside their family possibly. God, I pray that they'll take that step. Those who just need to spend time with you, and we talked a great deal about that last week, just need to, to be with you and to allow uh, their ears to hear you speaking to them and, and guiding them and, 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 and revealing things from your word. God, I pray that this week they will have the, the strength to make every effort to set the alarm, to get up, and to be with you, God. And for those who need some other ladies or guys to be with, just to debrief and talk, God, I pray that, that you'll help them to find the right person or see me if they need help getting connected to the right people. And God, for those of us who are in these groups, help us to constantly remember why we're there and not to lose the vision. And God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for Peter, and we thank you for John Mark, and that we can know that you're not finished with us. You love us exactly where we're at, but you're not finished with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.